Hi, I'm Larry Hammer, and you're listening to Talking Joe. Making it up as you go along takes everything you've got. Take a look at all those comics, he sure has wrote a lot. Larry Hammer is his name. It's time for Talking Joe, where everybody knows his name. And they're all so glad he came. You wanna be where you can hear interviews of great acclaim. You wanna be in the Eyes Not Hall of Fame. You wanna be where you can hear interviews of great acclaim. You wanna be in the Eyes Not Hall of Fame. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much, Larry. It's uh great privilege and and something that that i've been hoping that we would accomplish on the talking joe podcast since we started it all of those years ago so um i'm not suggesting no introduction for larry but if ever there were a guest on a gi joe yeah, podcast that doesn't need one who needs no who needs no mm-hmm. live from the talking joe studios it's talking joe Talking Joe is on the air. Welcome to Talking Joe. And today is an extra special episode. It's finally happened. We have got none other than Mr. Larry Hammer joining us today. So if you've got any knowledge at all about G.I. Joe, he won't need an introduction. He's the man behind the Marvel Comics running through to IDW Comics, the issue 298 just released up to up to date join me to talk to him as always it is my co-host it's an american tim i really want to talk joe with you it's a real american tim Hello, Mark. Funny story. Uh, I actually haven't read the new issue yet. Not from lack of enthusiasm. I went on a trip and I brought this on the plane and uh, it, it's, I, I mostly want to read it right before you and I record yeah, yeah, a new yeah. episode about the issue. Let's introduce our guest. Have a time. Time to beat the soles of your boots with my face. Sucking chest wounds, red ninjas, brain scanner, rubber hooses, blue ninjas. And then some more sucking chest wounds. Hi. So, hi, Larry. Thanks for joining us. How many interviews more than normal are you doing as issue 300 gets closer and because it's the uh, 40th anniversary year? I'm trying to do as few as possible. (laughs) (laughs) Very privileged uh, to have you then. So. Um, it's uh, I mean, basically I just repeat the exact same things, you know, word for word in, in every interview. Well, we are not going to ask uh, how you started writing the series and how okay. Hasbro picked you or found you uh, in, okay. in eighty. Tim, should 81. we ask how Silent Interlude came about? <laughs> Uh, okay. We could ask Larry. Uh, we could ask Larry what he thinks of the nineteen eighties animated TV show. <laughs> or we could ask him 
who would win in a fight, Wolverine or Snake Eyes? Snake Eyes. Larry has <laughs> has so, more... so I'll start. I'll start with this. I'll go. I'll go. So 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 Larry, I think it it feels as an outside observer that you've been a busy guy of of late. You've been writing Iron Fist, some Wolverine. You've been uh, on Deathstroke, X Men Legends. You've won uh, an Eisner uh, Hall of Fame. D- does it feel to you like you're you're having a kind of a bit of a renaissance uh, in these these last few years? Well. Maybe without the RE, <laughs> I never, I, I never um, had anything to have a renaissance for. Basically, you know, I mean, I was, you know, ignored by fandom for the entire run of GI Joe and Wolverine. You know, during that entire time that was at Marvel doing both GI Joe and Wolverine, I didn't get invited to a single con. No fanzine wrote a single review of anything I was doing. I was like persona non grata, mainly because um, I was the the hack that was doing the, the toy license book. And the, and the only reason that uh, that the, the fanboys at the time thought that it was uh, doing any good was because it was being, you know, pushed by advertising and stuff you were getting in a phenomenal amount of uh mail as i understand it from the people actually reading and enjoying oh, I, I was getting two, 200 300 letters a week from kids you know everything was written in pencil and line paper and uh and whatever um but you know the the fanboys at the time who were i guess in their 30s you know hated me it was only until those 10 year olds that, you know, got to be, you know, 30 themselves and started, you know, having running fanzines and running conventions <laughs> that I started getting invited to cons. And, um, yeah, I guess, yeah, the, the, those kids reading GI Joe and Wolverine back in the, in the eighties are now writers. Runners of com- uh, of conventions, editors, <laughs> people that vote for awards, and all of these kind of things. Now, yeah. uh, you know, forty yeah. years later, brain surgeons. <laughs> I, I have to go to to get an emergency uh, dental appointment. You know, uh, last week, and um, you know, just call a random dentist office in you know, up up in upstate New York where we're sequestering and um you know i sit down in the chair and the dentist says are you the larry hammer who's a writer <laughs> and and, and he, you said uh-uh he turned out to be this you know rabid fan and you know he you know i'm sitting there with this the uh, suction thing in my mouth and he's just talking about G.I. Joe and Wolverine for 45 minutes. <laughs> Dr. And, and Mindbender two, made me decide what to come become for my career. Yeah, and, and two weeks before that, you know, we, our, our, our old car just gave up the ghost, so we decided we had to bite the bullet and replace it and went to the, the, the dealership to, to pick up our new used car. And um, I think it, it, we had to wait two weeks the title to clear 
And when the, when we went back, turns out they had Googled me. <laughs> <laughs> and, and half the dealership were fans. And so I, I, I get there and there were stacks of G.I. Joes and Wolverines to sign. <laughs> yeah, so I, you know, I, I signed all their books for them. And then I, you know, I, I went home and I filled a shopping bag with, you know, books and toys and other goodies and brought it back because I figured oh. I got to bring the car back to get it serviced, right? <laughs> <laughs> I want to be on their good side. I think, I think part of the, the narrative or the story of, um, Larry, you getting work later, you still making comics is that you never left comics and people leave comics because there are creative fields that pay better, like video games or movie designs and comics people have left for those greener pastures. And sometimes they come back and some people have stopped making comics because you know if you're an artist it's it's physically exhausting your hand your posture your eyes but you have always wanted to make comics you really like making comics and i think there's a point to be made here that like an editor now may know your work from a long time ago but you were always here ready to ready to work and you want to make stories well, that's the thing is that I, you know, I never left to do all those other things, but I still did all those other things. You know, I've worked on half a dozen video games. Um, you know, I, I, I wrote all the, uh, the, the video parts and, uh, storyboarded the entire Activision Wolverine's Revenge. That was a six-month project. <laughs> yeah, all those all those storyboards are actually sitting. All the originals are sitting in a in a shelf, uh, just a few feet <laughs> away from me. But go on, go on. Yeah, I mean, uh, I I also worked in development hell in, in Hollywood. Um, you know, I've written eight, written and got paid for eight screenplays, none of which got made. But you know, I was. Doing stuff at Paramount, and I got paid for a script at DreamWorks. You know, and um, you know, I think it, I saw you posting some storyboards to was it Broadwalk Empire on yeah, uh, on I, your I, Facebook. I storyboarded for Boardwalk Empire, for Sopranos, for Third Watch. Wow, a bunch of TV shows, lots of TV commercials. I mean. When I started out, I was working at Continuity, which was Neil Adams's studio. And we did tons of storyboards and motion boards and animatics and comps and stuff to advertising. Those are, you know, the, the bread and butter, you know, paid the, paid the rent. Um, because, you know, when I, when I first started drawing comics, it was in the early seventies. My, my first Marvel rate was uh, $23 a page uh, for finished pencils. And I could barely draw a page a day. Um, so that was my rate when I did Iron Fist for the Marvel premiere in 73, I think it was, something like that. And you left because Atlas made you a better offer? Yeah, I, I was 
taking pages into Marvel and um, when they were on Madison Avenue in the 50s, and Howard Chaikin was standing in front of the door at Marvel, directing people across the street. To, uh, <laughs> and and so you, already, you know, he said, oh, you should go across the street and, and, and work for Atlas. And, and I said, well, why should I do that? You know, I mean, I got a monthly book at Marvel. <laughs> and Howard said, well, they'll double your rate. And I said, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so I went from make, so I had gotten a $2 raise at Marvel. So I was up to a big 25 bucks a page. And I went over to Atlas and they immediately said, no, I'll give you 50 bucks a page. But Atlas didn't, <laughs> Atlas didn't stick around very long. No, but uh, I had other fish to fry too. Uh, just to clarify, you you said a moment ago, uh, Marvel up in the fifties, and for listeners and viewers, that's that's streets in Manhattan. That's not a decade. Oh, okay, right, okay. Um, yeah, so midtown Manhattan. Yeah. All right. So, in terms of situating you in New York, a moment ago you talked about writing screenplays, working in development hell, and I think of you as a New Yorker and a New York writer artist, a New York mm -hmm. creative. So when you were working on those screenplays, you were doing it from home, a home office or an office in New York, or did you go to Los Angeles? Oh, I had to go back and forth to Los Angeles a lot about that work, okay. you know, meetings and lunches and whatever. But I, you know, I wrote everything at home, you know, um, but I did have a, a deal with CBS theatrical before they went belly up. Um, my writing partner at the time, Gabrielle Kelly, and I were, had a deal with um, CBS to write a, a screenplay for Malcolm McLaren, the guy who created the Sex Pistols, um, called Heavy Metal Surfing Nazis. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I think he, he was dating Lauren Hutton at the time, famous model. And so he would always bring Lauren Hunt into these meetings and, you know, and she actually had better ideas than he did. <laughs> <laughs> but, but you don't want to leave New York. You did not want to leave New York. I know you've traveled mm -hmm. for conventions, but mm -hmm. was there any idea that you might relocate to California? Oh. No, I never wanted to live in LA. It's like too, I just can't, stand all that traffic and having to, you know, it takes two hours to get to anything, you know, and um, I just, you know, I was born in New York, raised in New York, and I, I like the um, being plugged into the cycle of life here, <laughs> to see the changes in the seasons and you know, all that. You know. So for someone who hasn't been to New York or someone who's only been to Times Square and that's what they think New York is, uh, what are what are some things about New York? I mean, you, you don't want to leave New York. So what are some what are some specific things that you have always been attached to or you've become more attached to as you've stayed there? I've always been attached to Lower Manhattan, you know, the Greenwich Village and Soho, Tribeca, that whole area. I rarely venture above 23rd Street. 
Why? Um, because everything that I like is is downtown. You know, uh, uh, Tribeca, Soho, Little Italy, Chinatown, uh, Lower East Side. Um, you know, it's all there. Yeah. All right. So for this this viewer listener who has not been to New York and doesn't understand, what is this that's all there? Restaurants, shops, um, just these, you know, like I, I love the West Village, you know, it's like narrow tree-lined streets, um, you know, sort of preserved, uh, you know, 19th century housing and uh, things like that. And I, I, I don't like the the stone canyons of the Midtown. Stainless steel and glass and that stuff doesn't do anything for me. And you're a you're a coffee guy, right, Larry? That uh, your morning routine starts with a with a coffee. Am I right in thinking that? Yeah, I, I like my coffee. You, so is there <laughs> is, is there is there like a sort of a, a coffee mecca that you always you know have to go to when you're when you're out in in New York that that does your favorite cup of coffee? I do my own. Oh. I, I, I hate Starbucks. It's like I didn't say Starbucks. <laughs> bitter, bitter brew <laughs> is all right. If you're out and about, so not Starbucks, but uh, Krispy Kreme or Dunkin' Donuts or McDonald's, or is there some local cafe which is a like a B minus, if not your own at home? Um, well, there were various like Latino places you know, that I like because I can get like a cafe con leche. Um, things like that. What's the secret to your perfect homebrewed cup of coffee? Um, I, I use like half uh, French dark roast uh, beans. And I grind them, and then I add um, the, the other half is a cafe de ola, which is a Mexican coffee. It's like, it's like has cinnamon and other spices in it. Sounds like one to try. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> now, I was I was talking about you, the, how you've been sort of a busy busy guy of late uh, in in terms of uh, you know outside observer seeing seeing everything that you've been involved with and um, something that you know surprises a lot, a lot of people is the level of work that you did on Deathstroke with the uh, I guess is it breakdowns you describe it as or mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. Um, where you did a, quite an enormous amount of uh, issues. On, on that, and as a, a GI Joe fan and fan of the, the you know issue twenty one, issue twenty six, so then you know some of the ones that that you that's got your pencil strokes uh, on on the paper, but um, slightly well, jealous. I was, I, was laying slightly... Out, I was laying out four four books at DC. Oh, oh wow! I was laying out. Oh, I can't even remember the titles. Michael Cray. Yeah, Michael Cray. Damage. Uh, damage and Deathstroke. Deathstroke and something else. I forgot what it was. Was that all because of one editor? Was no, that all it was, because it, it, was a, it was different editors? <laughs> but it, it starts with Deathstroke, right? So priest. Yeah, it, started with, it started with Deathstroke. So and, was it uh, priest or was it the editor? I think it was both. Okay, I mean, priest. The, the, yeah, but I think uh, what it was is that you know DC had. All these artists that, that, that could really draw, uh, 
beautifully. I mean, uh, every one of them can actually, you know, draw a lot better than I can. But they can't tell a story. You know, they can't put two panels together to make a cohesive sequence. Um, so, you know, my forte is has been in um, telling the story with pictures, you know, graphic continuity. That's, you know, what I, I feel is really important to, to this craft is being able to tell the story with pretty much just the pictures, you know, that, that you don't really have to read it, you know. Right from the get-go, you know, I mean, when I was a little kid, the, 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 the comics that attracted me were the Coral Barks, Uncle Scrooge's. I, you know, even at five years old or six years old, I could tell the difference between Barks and, you know, the, the other guys. <laughs> um, you know, I, I didn't know his name, but I, I knew there was one duck guy who was like much better. <laughs> right for for reader uh, for listeners and viewers, all those comics didn't have creator credits. They just said yeah. like, Walt Disney presents or by right. Walt Disney. And kids fans were referring to the good duck artist, not like <laughs> right. like the nice old man. Like no, the good duck artist. They were saying like. No, stories by the good duck artist, as opposed to the other yeah. ducks artists. Yes. Right. And then I got very interested in manga, because uh, there used to be a, a bookstore on Fifth Avenue called Zen Books, which uh, imported all these Japanese books and a ton of manga. And this is before, this was, you know, in the early 70s, before anybody yeah. was there. And I remember one day I went in there and I, and I saw, um, you know, the, the first volume of Akira, you know, mm. and it was like the, uh, the bigger size, not the digest. And the first uh, 16 pages were in color, you know, and on better paper. But then the rest of the book is all pulp. Uh, and I was, I was really amazed, you know, uh, because I could read the whole story without being able to read Japanese. You know, the, 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 the visual storytelling was so clear. So I bought every single copy of Akira they had. <laughs> I went back to continuity with two shopping bags. <laughs> And I was, I was just selling them to, you know, other artists that came into the studio at, at cover price at, you know, at what I paid for them. I didn't make any money off of it. And, uh, both bags were gone within a week, less than a week. <laughs> and the, the people that snapped them up were like people like Kaluta and Lights and, uh, um, Lesser artists weren't interested. They, they didn't know what they were looking at. <laughs> and the same thing happened. Uh, I, I went into Zen Books one day and I, and I saw a Lone Wolf and Cub, you know, Ogami Ito. Holy smoke. <laughs> and I, I did the same thing. I filled up another shopping bag with the digest size ones and, you know, and um, those went 
immediately also. He's going to collude. Got got one. In, um, I think Barry Smith and Frank Miller. Um, yeah, so you know, none of this stuff had been translated at the time. But I remember, you know, once sitting around with Mike Kaluta and some other guys, and we were talking about the stories, you know. And then we we all realized, you know, we're talking about these stories as if we actually read them, you know. <laughs> and none of us could read Japanese, but. The storytelling is so clear and the acting is so good in, in, in those manga that, you know, you, you really even even need to read it. Yeah. Of course, lots of times you might not want to, to find out what they're actually saying because what you're, <laughs> what you're imagining is so much better. It's, it's the, you know, it's the Mobius syndrome, you know, like, I thought, oh, this Mobius, I was looking at this Mobius stuff. It was so <laughs> brilliant, I thought. And then, you know, when I actually read the translation, it was all about like crystals and things. And, <laughs> you know, I was like, oh, man. <laughs> that was depressing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So DC sought you out, I guess, because of your, the, you know, your strong storytelling. But the, the point that I, I was kind of alluding to was was how, as a GI Joe fan, slightly jealous that we weren't getting uh, any of those uh, delicious layouts on uh, onto the GI Joe book. Was it ever discussed that you might? You know, yeah. Well, you know, none of the my, none of the GI Joe editors were ever interested in me doing that. You know, maybe they just were not aware. Mm. Whatever. Or in the case of Shannon Gallant, who has drawn most of your issues for IDW, mm-hmm. his storytelling is so strong and he's so fast, he, he didn't need it. No. Right. But I, I think it's... you have I think you have said to me previously that in the case of some of those DC books, it was also about speed. That oh, yeah. that either the books were shipping uh more than monthly or the artists are drawing all of this incredible detail and it mm-hmm. takes a third of your time to figure out what the page is going to be. If someone, if the editor just hands you a template of where all of the, where all the bodies are and the perspective, right. Mm-hmm. Then the artist can just start applying all of this incredible specificity and detail. Um, so I, I think in the case of GI Joe, it, you know, here, here I am holding up an issue by this guy. Mm-hmm. It, it mostly didn't need it. Sometimes I, I would lay out like a, a, a and choreograph a fight scene, you know, for other, for other artists. Yeah. It was e- easy. It's easier for me. I can draw faster than I can type. <laughs> I could draw that faster than I could sit down and describe what's going on in words. I, I typically those DC stories, uh, I could I could lay out the whole book um, to this level in, in about three days or less. I, I didn't tell them that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So if I can, if I can fill in a blank here or take a guess, you're Larry. You're seeing movies in your head. Oh yeah. Right. You're seeing actors, real or imagined, in in realistic spaces, and you, with your brain, can move your camera, like your imaginary eyeballs, in your brain all the way around a scene and like pick the shots and then you're just yeah. drawing them. Yeah. And, and, and I hear their voices. Ah. You know, I mean, 
the, and the voices have not, you know, I, I, I've never actually seen a complete animated uh, G.I. Jean episode. Because, like, the, the, to, to me, like, a lot of the voices didn't, didn't fit the characters. Because to me, you know, in my head, Destro sounds like Sean Connery. Excellent. You know, and and Cobra Commander, Cobra Commander is is Orson Welles. Hmm. You know, um, that's sort of you know. know, Cobra Commander is always pontificating and you know using you know fifty dollar (laughs) word. When we look at the issues, we often we often sort of say, "quote you know our favorite line of dialogue from from an issue," and for for me, you've got a, a very good percentage chance of the, my favorite line coming from um, from Cobra Commander using one of his you know, fifty dollar <laughs> words. How, where where does where does Cobra Commander and his his voice come from and and do you do you have like a, a jotter of words that, that need to that 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 you're you're saving no, no, up I, for, I, for I, 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 I base all most of the characters on people I I, I know, you know. I mean so uh Cobra Commander is Orson Welles by way of Calvin Beck. Now Calvin Beck uh was the publisher and editor of Castle of Frankenstein magazine. You know, back in the 60s. Uh, and uh, I did my first cartooning work for Castle of Frankenstein. Well, Calvin Beck sort of fancied himself as sounding like Orson Welles in, um, uh, what's it called, um, Citizen Kane. Now, in fact, the, the pseudonym that he used as uh, uh, on, on the title page of Castle of Frankenstein was Charles Foster Kane. <laughs> yeah. And that he had this really sort of like, you know, basso, mellifluous voice, you know, that he would, um, uh, considering that he actually looked like a, looked like a troll. <laughs> and, um, you know, and he lived with his mother in this house in Bergen, North Bergen, New Jersey, across the, across the river from Manhattan. And, uh, it was a very strange, you know, household and relationship with his mother. And for years, there had been a rumor circulating among the science fiction and comic community that Robert Block had based the characters, uh, in Psycho <laughs> on, on Calvin Beck and, and, and his mother. And, uh, I, I remember in the, in the late seventies, I, I was sitting at home and I get, I, I get a phone call from Jeff Jones, Jeffrey Catherine Jones, but he was Jeff, Jeffrey Jones at the time. Um, and he said, I was just at a science fiction convention and I met Robert Block and I couldn't help myself. I, I, I asked him. <laughs> Did you base the, the characters in Psycho on Calvin Beck and his mother? And Block apparently replied in the affirmative. <laughs> now, now this is, you know, it's third hand. You know, and for all I know, 
you know, Block could have been, you know, taking Jeffrey for a ride, but it's something I want to believe. <laughs> yeah, so I don't know where I, where, how I got off on that tangent. But. <laughs> I have a, I have a. Oh, we're talking about the voices of the characters. Okay. Yeah. Oh, that's right. So, yeah. I, so I mean, I, I knew Calvin Beck for you know a while, so his his speech mannerisms and his, you know, and he was a real, I mean, uh, he, he had all these ads in the back of the magazine that kids would send in like, you know, 50 cents. And he would like, you know, just pocket the money and <laughs> send them the product. <laughs> uh, and uh, I had a weekend job working for Calvin Beck as the projectionist. He had an eight millimeter print of Fritz Lang's Metropolis that he showed at the McBurney YMCA on weekends. And, um, and he would charge money for this. And he had a, a turntable and speakers and he would have, have this whole collection of electronic music. And he would like hand lift, you know, the score, you know, on, on, from his turntable. But he had two eight millimeter projectors and Neither of the take-up reels, the motors, worked anymore. So my main job was to sit there for the entire screening of <laughs> Metropolis, <laughs> taking up the eight-millimeter film on the take-up reel, and then changing the you know the reels and operating the, the um, projector. So I pretty much know that movie frame by frame. Um, you know, but you know, this was life before video and, you know, life before the internet. Mm. I had, um, I had a question about the personality of, of Cobra Commander sort of uh, prompted by uh, some of our discussion about his, his language. Mm -hmm. And, and on the one hand, you've kind of got this, uh, somewhat psychopathic kind of, uh, you know, wannabe sort of ruler of the world who's, you know, happy to, to pop people in, uh, in the boot of a car and then, you know, shoot them and other, any other number of deplorable things. And then this, oh, yeah. uh, and then this other guy who, who sort of is schmoozing on the floor of a casino and, and, uh, telling people to try the, the dip. Um, how do you reconcile the different sort of schisms of, uh, of Cobra Commander's personality? Well, that, that's, it's pretty much Calvin Beck, you know. <laughs> And his mother, his, his mother, uh, you know, I think the, the original family name was Bacarius, the Greek. And Mama Beck sort of was under the delusion that she was an FBI agent because she had been writing letters to the FBI for years, um, you know, informing on her neighbors. <laughs> You know, that the, the, she, was, she was convinced she was completely surrounded by communist spies. And I guess some wag at the FBI finally wrote her a letter that said something to the extent of, Dear Mrs. Beck, we here at uh, the New York office of the Federal Bureau of Investigation wouldn't know what to do without you. <laughs> 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 and, she had this letter framed. It was hanging in front of the wall. <laughs> she had no idea, you know, that she had, didn't have a clue, you know, that 
maybe it was, um, you know, you know, being sarcastic. She would always, you know, Mama Beck knows. <laughs> you know, Mama Beck is an agent for the uh, for the FBI. And there was a whole weird paranoia going on in the household. So Cobra Commander is uh, in hosting tourists at the casino. He's he's eager to please. He's maybe trying to go legitimate. He's trying to ward off sort of the demons of guilt for doing all these terrible things. I am so struck by this scene where he's encouraging people to gamble and enjoy his hospitality. And I know he's he's a he's an outlandish character, but um, I feel like this is a, a sort of a new level of sort of magnanimity or, or false sort of, I mean, he's, he's, he's really hosting retired people at, at his, at his casino. Or is it, is it, he's, or is it, he's a fisherman dangling a little worm in front of uh, the, mm -hmm. the unsuspecting the guests that he's hosting and, and it, it will all turn at some point. Yeah, well, it's all, it all plays into his whole ex used car salesman, um, you know, sort of, it's an Amway scheme in a way, you know, the Cobra Pyramid scheme. Yeah. He's like, yeah, he's like, you know, in a way, he's sort of like Bernie Madoff. <laughs> I'm, I'm sort of expecting, like, with, with Millville, like with brainwashing the citizens of Millville around issue 99 and 100, mm -hmm. that there's this secondary plot on Cobra Island with this casino having lured all of these tourists. And, oh, I, I think he'll brainwash them and then they'll like give him money or he can ransom them because they're, they're kidnapped. Mm -hmm. But maybe it's just as simple as, no, he just wants them to gamble and lose their money because it's, it's this pyramid scheme. But it actually just stops right there. No, it doesn't stop right there. I think he you know, <laughs> he has he has aims on them too. You know, I mean, okay. Um, we had that curious code name uh, in the in the issues a couple of a couple of issues back. Uh, some was it something laundry? I'm lost. What? <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm also uh, I'm, my my stack of recent issues is through yeah, that. Yeah, mine's door, down so there. I'm, I can't. But, okay. I was trying to remember the code name that uh, that Cobra Commander had for his project, like that, the um, Opera Operation Dirty Laundry or something. Yeah, 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 yeah. I can't um, remember. I can't remember <laughs> two issues back. <laughs> I mean, the thing is, you know, I, I make it. I, I literally just make it up as I go along. So, you know, um, and I rarely reread stuff once it leaves my my hands. Do you, do you ever go back and, and maybe reread uh, re some older issues from from time to time, sort of to see what ideas that might prompt of things to return uh, to? No, I only go back to reread stuff if it it's impacting on something that I'm writing currently. How how active is your back and forth with editorial in terms of? you presenting an idea for the next issue? Uh, are you just writing the plot and because you're the guy who's been doing this so long, they say, okay, or is there 
is there a back and forth? There's, there's never been a back and forth. I just write the stories and hand them in. Nah. <laughs> For example, something like um, uh, the snake hunt, which um, we sort of, you know, touted as a was it was it ten parts? I think um, ten and, parts. And we were going to see every single living and and uh, Joe and and Cobra. Was that was that there something discussed there? For example, about what that might in, encompass sort of i don't know quite where i'm gonna get up to but i'm sort of starting on this this road as no well tom waltz would would say well you know maybe we should do a 10 issue arc uh, you know and he would just throw this stuff up you know like hey you know let's do snake hunt or something you know? and it would be very sort of vague and then i just had to fill it in you know? um or, you know, he would say, oh, uh, we want to throw in a couple of these uh, things that are uh, filling in the past on some of these characters, you know, like untold tales. Yeah. So, um, you know, uh, I like doing those because it's, you know, I, I don't have to think in terms of continuity. <laughs> but... All right, so I I know and believe that you make it up as you go, right? Each issue, each page, and mm -hmm. so here I am holding the new one, two ninety eight. At a certain point, you were told that the story would end at three hundred, and I have to believe that even though when you get to three hundred and you're writing page twelve, you may not know what happens on page thirteen, but I also have to believe that some part of you is forming ahead of issue 300, some kind of resolution. So when did you start that, even if it's vague? When did you start planning ahead for 300? Well, I've already written 301. Um, you know. <laughs> we, I'm sh okay, so if, if I can pause you there, I do, that's very exciting, and I, I do want to talk about that. But I also want to give 300 a little of its a little space to be sort of um, an ending for IDW and also mm -hmm. a celebration because it's an anniversary. So um, mm -hmm. also, I'm, I'm also, I'm sure you can't really tell us anything about 301. But so <laughs> for, for a moment, we can pretend that 301 sort of wasn't going to happen or wasn't mm -hmm. a sure thing. Some version of you're wrapping this up for IDW, even if not well, the whole story ever. Oh, I, I did decided not to do that, uh, to wrap it up. I, I oh. ended 301 with a, uh, with a three-way cliffhanger. <laughs> <clears throat> okay. <laughs> so 301 ends with the possibility that, you know, everybody on Cobra Island and everybody in the C-130 is going to die. <laughs> so so the knowledge that there would be a 301 meant that you approached the ending to 30300 differently um, oh, yeah. to to would have no, well, to I, I would I, I would not have like you know killed off characters or something to, to end to end the run uh it's it's basically what I did at the end of the Marvel run I had them put you know the pit in mothballs and left it you know, left it all hanging so that 
if it was revived beyond issue 255, uh, that you know you wouldn't have to do all this, you know, retconning and um, that, that problem. I I think so. I I have a friend who's also a GI Joe reader, and and he he has never been a fan of of killing characters. I'm not talking about GI Joe. I mean, sort of everything, superhero comics in general. And and the manager at my store and I will talk about this sometimes. Where uh, you know the, the death of Superman in 1992 that was a that created a bunch of really interesting story opportunities and made people realize they missed Superman. Um, but it was also a stunt. And I, I imagine some of you not killing off characters at the end of your run, not leaving it on some major cliffhanger is a kind of sort of custodial generosity because uh, someone else may pick this up some other time at another publisher, right? We'd all mm -hmm. like to think that they're gonna add, powers that be will ask you to continue G.I. Joe past 300. But I, I feel like it's it's sort of a polite gift to whoever may write this next, because right. um, it may not be you, that they wouldn't have to then do all this work to sort of put the team back together. Well, um, I, I, you know, I feel a slight proprietary thing about G.I. Joe characters since I, I created them. But when I worked on characters that, you know, that, that I haven't created, I, I I really feel the custodial thing strongly. You know, I mean, that's why I don't understand people who are given custody of, of a character and then go about, you know, killing them off or killing off major supporting characters and things like that. You know, about 80% of the, the supporting characters that I created, you know, for, for Iron Fist and uh, Wolverine and, and uh, Avengers, you know, subsequent writers have just killed them, you know, or, you know, shunted them off to limbo. Or they've shown up in movies and TV. Yeah, and then, and then somehow going off into limbo. You know, it's like the John Wraith that I created in Wolverine. Uh, it was based on uh, my friend Ed Davis. Um, in fact, uh, when, when they, they, they cast Will I Am to play John Wraith in, in the Wolverine movie, they dressed him exactly like I had the characters on. It looked exactly like <laughs> Ed Davis. Um, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> uh, all right, so I guess the I, I guess the difference between wrapping up at 155 versus 300 is mm -hmm. that for, for 155 you had a very short indication of, of when it would be the ending. I don't know if that was you know days, weeks mm -hmm. uh, versus uh, versus 300, where it's probably I don't know closer to a, a year or, or several months at any rate. Mm -hmm. um, so I guess there's time to begin to sort of conjecture things about I, I guess have a thought process about how to end it where to leave things well no that's all kind of moot if if you know if you write page by page there's no difference <laughs> 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 you 
doesn't matter if it's just, if it's like you know six months ahead or the, the next month. It's, if you're writing it page by page, it makes no difference whatsoever. I suspect, and part of why I sort of remind myself and our listeners uh, on the podcast when we talk about these comics, this that you write, uh, you make it up as you go along. Uh, intellectually, I believe you. I believe that this is your approach. Since I don't work that way, when I think about how you're making up this stuff, it it sort of fully doesn't connect. It's a little bit like like I don't know how to write music, and so sometimes I think of a song that's wonderful, and it's like alchemy or magic. I don't understand how someone made that song, and you've made you've made a comment on social media that make it up as you go along and sometimes it sucks sometimes it turns out badly and so i I sort of remind myself and our listeners with this comic like no 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 it's not just like a thing he's saying at conventions to entertain us it's actually how he works and he doesn't know what's happening next and i think either you get lucky a bunch or you have over the years figured out how to sort of ride these currents, like ride the ride the wave, and generally lead to uh, satisfying conclusions, right? Those issues that don't suck. But I think sometimes, like I think Mark's question, like surely you approached it a little differently because you knew there'd be something after three hundred. I think this comes from the point of view of, like, really he he really he's making it up as he goes. Really, really, really? That seems yeah. so uh, scary and risky. Oh, it's, it's like jumping in the deep end of the pool every issue. Um, when, when I finished writing number one, I, I remember thinking, well, you know, I've shot my wad. You know, <laughs> what more can I say about these things? And, um, you know, but without without that that fear, you get complacency, you know. And with complacency comes the urge to play it safe. And whenever you play it safe, you know you come up with dreck. Because you know if you don't take the risks, you know you're just uh, hacking it out. You know, you have to put yourself into that situation where you're taking the risk. You know, if 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 you if you're sitting there and and you're writing and everything is clicking along, you know, um, it's going to be cream of wheat. It's going to be, you know, bland as hell. But you know, if you're, you know, if you've got your story engine clanking along and you know all of a sudden you get to this crisis point and you go, oh, you know. You put your characters into this crisis and, and, and you force them to fight their way out of it or figure their way out of it. And, you know, you force them to do it. And, and you're, and if you've established these characters and they're, and they're walking around in your head, they will act in character. You know, I get to, like, sometimes I get to a point in the story and I go, I've like almost pre-choreographed it and because I want to get to this point. I want the characters to get to this point. But in order to get to that point, I may have to violate the character. And at that point, I go, no, my cousin Randy wouldn't do it that way. 
you know, I had to go back and change that so that it's true to the character. And, and like, okay, so some of these characters are, you know, uh, they're going to react in a way that's, you know, not beneficial to themselves, obviously, <laughs> you know, because a lot of pe people do that, you know. So if that's part of the person's character, that there's a little bit of self-destruction there, and and they do that, that changes the whole story, you know. But that also adds the excitement and, you know, the surprise, you know, because, you know, if you've got this point D, where all the characters have to get to, and you start out at point A, at a certain point, you get stuck forcing your characters into this choreography to get to that point. And mm -hmm. therefore, your plot is starting to control your characters. And your characters should be the ones controlling the plot. You know, in, in issue 21, I get halfway through the story and I realize that, oh, both, both Storm Shadow and Snake Eyes have torn their right sleeve. And I thought, oh, what can I do with that? And I thought, give them the same tattoo. <laughs> and I thought, well, what, what tattoo should I give them? And I said, oh, well, when I did Iron Fist, I had this character, Lake Kong the Thunderer, I created, and I, I put this uh, breastplate on him that had each Ching hexagram on it. Mm -hmm. And I just chose a random hexagram. And every time I had to draw that character, I had to look up the hexagram. <laughs> so when I came down to choose this hexagram for, you know, for both their, their forearms, I said, Oh, I'll choose one that's easy to remember. You know, it's, it's alternating broken and, and solid lines, starting with a broken one at the top. I can remember that. Okay. Um, had no idea what the hexagram symbolized or why both of them had it. You know, I had to figure all that out five issues later, number 26, when I did the origin story. But I really, you know, at that point in this number 21, I had no idea, you know, that the Arashikari clan existed or even that that was the name you know? i was, I was going to say i think when i sort of think about i'm not a writer but i've attempted to on on, on times and i'm, I'm not a when, writer either I, i've never considered myself a writer um i'm a penciler you know uh, i i i do these stories completely graphically in my head and then i describe when I sit down as a word processor, I'm describing the pictures I see in my head. And the dialogue comes dead last. Dialogue is only there to, to, you know, fill in the spaces. And if you were faster or if your style were more popular with editors, you would be penciling all of these stories, presumably. Yeah. 
I was going to say that when I when I've been, when I've attempted to to write before, I've sort of it's typically I've found myself most productive sort of like going on a long walk or something like that and trying to come up with the the story in my head and and sort of try and get it as formed as you know much as possible, and then the process of actually writing it is sort of you know the the translating of that that story that I've got in my head onto the you know word processor and refining it. it I see. I, is never, it, I never think in terms of story. I've never written an outline in my life. I can't ever remember plots. You know, I used to tell, you know, well, when I was an editor at Marvel, I would tell my writers, um, have you ever read Peanuts? And they oh, yeah, I've been reading Peanuts all my life. And I said, okay, tell me what happens in any one Sunday Peanuts strip. They can't do it. You know, they'll say, well, Lucy is holding the football. Charlie Brown comes running up. And at the last minute, Lucy takes the football away and Charlie Brown falls flat on. No, that's the setup. What's the actual gag? What's, what's the punchline? What, what goes on? And give me, tell me what happens in one Sunday strip and nobody can do it. But if you ask those same people, Write me a one-page character analysis of Lucy Van Pelt. They can do it because you're they're invested. You're invested in those characters. You're not inve invested in a plot. Same thing with Harry Potter. I would say, tell me what happens in any Harry Potter movie. You know what's what's the plot? Well, there's this goblet of fire and. The, <laughs> Why do they want it? What does it, what does it do? But you know, no, nobody can answer. And again, you know, you're not going to see the next Harry Potter movie because you say, man, the, the plot of that last one was really terrific. You know, you want to spend more time with those characters, you know, because you like those characters and you want to hang out with them. And, and and that's what what it's about. It, you know, I I spend ninety percent of my time nailing down the characters. If you get the characters completely nailed down, you throw them into a situation and they write it themselves. If you've only got a vague idea of what these characters are, you can't do that. What well, what I wondered about was was whether whether that you know those characters you know the movie in your in your mind whether that plays out when you're away from your writing desk so when not in front of your uh, you know word processor or does you, you kind of put that to one side and, and and when you're talking about you know writing a page at a time it is literally no, no, not it, you know it's all it's all about the characters you know your story is about the interaction between the characters Right. If you think of, of, of a plot in an abstract, it's, it's like all you all then all you're talking about is choreography. You know, you're just moving these mannequins around, you know, uh, to do a dumb show, and that's not what that, that's not dramaturgy. You know, the story is is the conflict arising between the characters. Without that, you don't have. There's no story. There's no plot. <laughs> you, know, you just have these 
faceless, you know, mannequins, you know, performing this this gavotte on 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 the playing field. That's it. And in in terms of in terms of the process, you're sort of following the Marvel method. You're you're sort of getting a plot onto onto a page, which goes to mm-hmm. the artist to to uh, pencil ink, and then it it comes back to you for dialogue. Is that almost one of the last stages? Yep. yep. And in between that kind of that initial plot and the dialogue at the, at the end, you know, you've now got the pictures on the on the page, kind of you know helping to inform what those words are do you, do you find yourself going huh they've they've drawn that in a slightly different way to to what i would have expected or that the expression on on dawn's face maybe you know gives there's something there that that's gonna um oh, give sure. me an idea and d- does that kind of does that process the the art before the the dialogue you know really inform the process and potentially like put things off in a slightly oh, different it, it, direction it, it, it also adds to it. The best artists will add stuff, and then I riff off of what they add. You know, I, I'm willing to do that. I'm willing to, you know, I want to do that. To, it's it's a collaborative effort, you know. Um, and it's it's like playing jazz, you know. So I get to do my riff, which is the flat, and then the artist does their riff, and you know. If, it, if, it, if we were playing in a, in a jazz combo, uh, I would listen to what their motif is, what, you know, and, and how they attack the theme. And then I, I do my own bit on it, hmm. you know, and that's, you know, what gives us stuff its real push. You know, it's like, you know, when I play with my band, um, I never had any pre-written solos, you know, I, it, it, would, it would like come to my solo and I had no idea. What I was gonna do. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I, cause I learned very early that when I did try to like, you know, absolutely memorize a solo, it would just not work. But if I, you know, am going with the flow and improvise on the spot, that's, that's when I can do some pretty interesting stuff. And yeah, there's I apply, a, I, I apply that to writing also. And there's a guitar behind you right now, right? Is there? I think so. Yeah, there it is. Oh, there, there it is. <laughs> there yeah. it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well done. Um, oh, it's a, it's a blonde Stratocaster. <laughs> So I have this, I have a question about sort of the external stimuli. The Marvel run, you continuously were given specific characters and vehicles to incorporate. And for the IDW run, there's none of that. Mm-hmm. How does, how does that feel? Mm. Doesn't make any difference to me. <laughs> I could do it either way. Okay. You know, in, in a way, having them say, Oh, we, you know, we want the, you know, the, the, the jet or the tank in this, uh, saves me thinking, you know? So maybe it's slightly harder to do it sort of in the latter run at IDW because there isn't any external uh, stimuli? Well, there's some external stimuli, you know, like, oh, you know, we'd like to do a 10, 10 issue arc of this or something like that. Of course. Okay. 
the, I guess since the boundaries are much, much, much broader. That in Marvel, you you guess you you had that drumbeat of this this toy is coming out. Let's include it. We've also got this mm-hmm. advert that's coming out, and we need you to kind of come up with a a cover idea and a, a basic gist of what might happen in the issue. And then you've also got all of these you know hundreds of of letters coming in, whereas mm-hmm. whereas in in the IDW environment, it's much closer to a a blank sheet of paper that you know go with it do what you like it feels like it must be a different dynamic all right so a similar question i think i can guess the answer the marvel issues were all 22 pages the mm-hmm. idw issues are 20 pages mm-hmm. do you feel differently when you are writing these slightly shorter stories with less real estate no <laughs> it doesn't make any difference to me how, how long the story is. Okay, because at, at 19, you're going to wrap it up for 20, or at 21, you're going to wrap it up for 22. Right. Okay. Because as, as a reader, for many years reading comics from all these publishers that were 22 pages, and then with in, you know inflation and cover prices, mm-hmm. comics went to 20 pages, I do notice a difference in the same way that when I watch... Uh, like an episode of Star Trek from the 1960s, you know, like at minute 42, I'm thinking, isn't this going to wrap up soon? But no, mm-hmm. it's got another six minutes or eight minutes. And it it actually feels much longer. And the pacing is different than an hour of television 20 or 30 years later. Well, it's also, you know, the, the, the format stuff has changed so much. I mean, because everything used to be, written so that you had the commercial breaks you know but with, with cable you know you don't have that anymore right um uh i really enjoyed your wolverine patch mini series and uh it has a finite ending and it it mm-hmm. doesn't immediately suggest a follow up any any discussions of you writing more wolverine no hmm. <laughs> i just said <laughs> I just take what comes down the pipe, you know. I don't, I'm not, I'm not campaigning for, for things. You know. Did you hear that, listeners? Larry Hama is asking you to campaign <laughs> for him. Send your emails. To, what is it? X X Office at Marvel.com. M Heroes at Marvel.com. Let the editors at Marvel know you'd like another patch miniseries. <laughs> well, the other, you know, the other things, I, they have all this stuff that I think they. They don't even know they have, you know. I, mean, uh, I don't know how many times people say, "Well, how come Marvel n- never reprinted Ant-Man?" Um, and I'm like, I, I don't think anybody at Marvel knows it even exists. I have this theory about that. Uh, it's is a guess. A theory would imply mm-hmm. that I have some evidence. I have a guess. I have a guess that someone at Marvel thinks that there's a creator participation deal and that Marvel would have to pay more money to republish it and therefore Marvel doesn't because all of the other sort of not quite superhero books from the 80s have been reprinted like uh, Wolfpack or Strikeforce Moratori which was related to the Punisher and you know, with its digital, with its online comics and these, you know, thousand page omnibi, it mm-hmm. looks like Marvel does want to republish everything. And the one thing they won't republish is all of that um, Ultraverse because they, they bought another company. But mm-hmm. all of those writers have 
uh, participation deals. And so I have I have thought for some years that someone at Marvel is under the mistaken impression that maybe you and Ron Wagner have a stake in Ant-Man. And so they're no, hands there, there, There's no stake in it. And it was originally intended to be to do two years that could be collected into a graph. It was designed as a graphic novel. And I, I thought of it as being a novel, you know, in uh, 24, 22-page segments. So I don't know. <laughs> So Talking Joe fans, send your emails to mheroes marvel.com and ask for ask for a big fat paperback of Ant-Man. Just looking over my my shoulder somewhere there is my custom bound copy of the Ant-Man uh, altogether. So I've got my I've got mine. <laughs> All right, so so uh going back to maybe the first question, I'm not sure where Mark is 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 editing our start point, but uh I asked you about doing more interviews since it's leading up to 300 and it's the anniversary. Um, are you doing more conventions this summer or this year? This summer? <laughs> it's gone. Summer's gone. <laughs> uh, uh, I, I, I'm going to Utica <laughs> uh, tonight and it's a one day show. And it, 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 it's a two hour drive. Uh, and then, um, I think the second week in November, I'm doing, um, Twin Cities, uh, Minneapolis. But that's about it. So roughly the same number of appearances this year as, say, before the pandemic. Mm -hmm. Uh, then I'm doing, I think, Pensacon, Pensacola. I have asked you this before. So I, I know the answer, but I'll ask you for the benefit of our audience. Uh, what's the best part of going to a convention where there's like a whole new city to explore and someone to maybe pick you up at the airport? Well, I've never actually explored any of the cities because <laughs> uh, I'm at the con. Hmm. You know, I, I, I go to a con, I... I I'm at my table when the doors open and I stay there until the thing closes. And then I probably have to go back to the hotel room and finish a bunch of sketches. And, um, so there's no time to actually, you know, see anything. I mean, I went to one GI Joe convention in Toronto years ago where it was held in, in the Toronto airport hotel. So I, I never left the airport. You know? <laughs> it went from, I took the the shuttle bus from the terminal to the hotel, did the convention, took the, the uh, two days later, took the shuttle back to the the terminal and got on the plane. Never left the confines of, of the airport. Um, because I hope uh, Dave Tree might get you back to uh, back to the UK for another rollout roll call one day. Uh, that was uh, that was a great appearance. Um, you post a lot of uh, photos online of food you are making or food you are enjoying. So I think what I was fishing for was when you go to a convention, uh, maybe the organizers will take you out to something that's local and good. Yeah, that's much better than being taken out to P.F. Chang's or, <laughs> or uh, Applebee's. <laughs> or, or Denny's, for that matter. 
you know, I, I like funky local fare, you know, barbecues or whatever. Um, you know, I hear the, yeah, I hear the I, entertainment I, I, in, in summer I'm really is one of the best. I'm, yeah, I'm adventurous about that stuff. <laughs> you know, one thing I liked about going to, to, to roll out the local is, you know, those horrible English fry ups. <laughs> 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 you know, in, enough cholesterol to like, um, you know, kill a pig. <laughs> <laughs> Sets you up for the day. Oh yeah, <laughs> absolutely. But you know, but I love that junky stuff. You know, I, I love those those full fry ups and and, and the, the really sort of funky fish and chips. I mean, you used to be able to get fish and chips at like these like stands. You know, and the, they don't really exist anymore. I think you know, uh, it was actually given to you wrapped up in real newspaper, and you know the the, the cod still had pieces of the skin stuck to it under the batter. And <laughs> really good, you know, horrible lumpy mushy peas. <laughs> I mean. The thing I like about British cookery is, is, is how bad it can be. You know? but, <laughs> bad meaning good. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, I like, you know, I, I like, like steak and kidney pies and things like that. What can I say? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I wanted to ask you about your issue 21 40th anniversary cover that you did, uh, not, not too long ago and, and reunite. Uh, reuniting you with your interior inca as well on on the on the book um and uh, i i would have, i think a lot of people had incorrectly assumed that you'd done the cover originally when of course it was ed hannigan and i think klaus jansen on on inks what was it at the at the time that that meant that you couldn't do the cover was it purely just that that rush to get the oh, yeah. issue done I, I was I, I was up to my neck just getting the interior pages done I, I wrote and drew that entire story in three days. Mm. You know, um, and was it probably handed out to to Ed as as like a studio artist who did a lot of the? No, because he was there. Yeah, <laughs> right. The in fact, he was the person. Fact, I, think, I think he was living there. Wow. You know, at, at one point he didn't have an apartment. He was like living in the. Annex to the office on uh, Madison Avenue. Uh, he had like a, a, a little foam rubber mat and a sleeping bag or something. Was this was this sort of tacitly allowed, or was he uh, was he breaking a rule and no one knew? I guess it was tacitly. I think there were a couple of people living there. <laughs> <laughs> I want to I want to point out for uh, listeners this this comment that Larry just made. It's like no Hannigan got the cover because he was there, and then we all chuckle. That sounds like a punchline, but um, so much of the Marvel office in the seventies and eighties was like it's like there's a couch by the door, and you like hang out and you sort of wait for someone to come in, and you network with them or you ask a question and. Sometimes a lot of new guys would hang out there hoping to get some work because an editor walks by and says, 
oh, new guy who's pretty good. You can draw like so-and-so. I need I need some pages because we're behind schedule or, you know, the package got lost mm-hmm. in the mail. And so if if you think of how people are sort of networking with editors now on online, on like websites where they can post their art to get seen, right? And, mm-hmm. you know, Marvel in the 70s and 80s, you had to be in New York to get noticed. And people would just hang out at the Marvel office. Well, it's also, you know, at, at that time, uh, every cover had to be approved by uh, by Jim Shooter. And uh, so you had to do a cover sketch and you had to get the cover sketch approved before you could get, you know, an artist to do the cover. Um, and this was before JPEGs and, you know, email. So uh, if you, if you asked, a, 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 you know, all the artists worked at home. If you asked an artist to do a cover sketch, they would have to mail it in or bring it in. It could take, you know, a day to two days. But I was in the office and I had been doing, I did all the cover sketches for G.I. Joe. I did cover sketches for all the books that went out of my office, Savage Sword, Conan the Barbarian, whatever. And um, so they would, uh, so sometimes the other editors would come to my office and say, oh, I need, I need, I need a sketch, I need it right away. I, I would do them at lunch. So I was maybe doing between five to 10 sketches for the other, uh, other editors a week at Marvel. Um, as well as all my own books and all the G.I. Jones. So I probably did over a thousand cover sketches at Marvel. Presumably you did not do a cover sketch for issue 21 because you were up to your eyeballs in, right. yeah. in interiors. Yeah. That's why I, I wanted to redo it and correct it <laughs> because I thought, oh, you know, the repelling, the repelling stuff is wrong, you know, and, and the gun is wrong and, you know, <laughs> all my, my, you know, my anal retention stuff sort of clipped in. So, and, and it's also, you know, the, you know, what is that rope attached to? You know, if, if you look at the, the angle of the building, you know, <laughs> the wrong angle, isn't it? It's, it's attached to that same place where, you know, Batman's rope is attached <laughs> to in Gotham or, you know, where Spider-Man's web is attached to. Um, and, you know, I wanted to put in the actual architecture of the um, Silent Castle. Also, in in suggesting Steve Leloha to finish this issue, you you knew him. Oh yeah. From from where? From when? I, I met him in San Francisco in the early seventies. I think at, at Trina Robbins's house. In okay. San Francisco. I was, I was going to say we had a an interesting sort of discovery in in sort of recent times as well. So this um image on the screen at the moment was was like a a prelim that was was done for Hasbro approval before the launch of issue one, and that the artist was at least a fandom fandom uh, unknown. And with a bit of investigation, it sounds like that the artist who did the piece on the left was probably Ed Hannigan. Does does that sound 
right to you, Larry? I don't know. It doesn't look like his stuff. I think it looks like your stuff, but I have shown you this image before, and I recall you saying it wasn't yours. No, I didn't draw that. No, and I, I don't. I, I think Ed Hattigan can draw better than that. <laughs> I at, at this <laughs> that that tank is really a, at this point. I'm going to guess. At this point, I'm going to guess that it's uh, someone in the art department at Hasbro. Or someone at the. I think uh, I, I think there was somebody in, in Hasbro's art department. Or if not Hasbro internal, then the art studio that they were contracting out their package uh, mm. designs to. Yeah, it doesn't it doesn't look like the style of of any artist that I know from that period. Yeah, because yeah, because Ed Ed maybe it wasn't him, but um, he was doing he was do doing similar things to you in terms of. Doing those those cover prelims and passing them off to uh, another oh, yeah. artist oh, to complete. Ed, Ed was the go-to uh, cover sketch artist, you know, because um, like like again, he was there hmm. in the office. Um, I think they would also ask Al Milgram and Carl Potts, because you know, there were guys that drew who were in the office all the time. Hmm. For those of you who are interested in, in Ed Hannigan's cover designs, uh, the Hero Initiative published with the cooperation of Marvel Comics five or ten years ago, a, a comic book one-shot for charity called uh, Ed Hannigan uh, Covered. Uh, so Marvel and Hero Initiative, and it shows many of his cover sketches and has maybe a couple comments on each of them. This is this is not a like a coffee table book. This is a like a single right. issue comic. I had a, a a slightly random question about those those early years, which um, I don't know whether you'll know the answer to. But it was, um, I think the the first issue appearance of the Baroness was is was issue one, and you know there was very few Cobra characters that you could use because they'd only created you know a couple of Cobra figures at that point in in time. So. Uh, so Baroness was filling in you know, a, a gap as someone without a mask and another uh, addition to the Cobra ranks. But unusually, she appeared in the comics first before becoming a toy later later on in the process. And she only saw print with her name in the in the small print of the comic uh, in in issue uh, sixteen, which I think might be when she had her, her new outfit. Can can you do you, do you remember do you recall sort of how the genesis of Baroness came about and how that translated it into becoming a toy after first appearance appearing in the comics? Well, you know, her, she exists because there were no Cobra characters that had faces at that point, and you know, you you, you can't have dramaturgy without agents of expression. You know, so um, you know. I talked to um, her Trimpy and I said, well, we need to come up with uh, a character that has no mask so we can, the person that's reacting to Cobra Commander so we get some drama, you know, acting going on. I said, well, let's make, well, let's make her a hot babe and let's put her in black leather. <laughs> we'll call her the Baroness or something. And, you know, and Herb came through. So, um, but, I, but, you know, you have to understand that 
there was a lot of resistance to having any female figures because they thought you know, uh, a, a male figure is an action figure, but a female one is a doll. You know, and that it would be very hard to convince a 10 year old boy to you know, play with a doll. <laughs> uh, but I think the Baroness changed all that. All of a sudden, you know, boys said, oh, I want that. <laughs> <laughs> and, and Hasbro came through. It was, it was kind of on the back of like the, the, the fan reaction to her appearance in the, in the mm -hmm. comic that, that Hasbro picked up on and, and decided to, uh, mm -hmm. you know, translate into an actual toy uh, appearance. Well, she's also, let's not forget, she also shows up in the earliest episodes. So the first issue is uh, March of 82, and the first episodes are September of 83. And when's her toy, Mark? Is it 84? Uh, I don't know. Off the top. 80, 83 or 84? 80, 83 or 84, yeah. Um, so, no, I think she was a, a mail-away in 83. It was like a special, I, I can't remember, but wasn't there some sort of coupon deal or something like that? Uh, I would have to double check. But, mm -hmm. um, but you know, like we, we may be able to pinpoint sort of a character's development and appearances in sort of the comic and the toy, um, despite, you know, sort of the, the, the haze of memory. But a lot of the stuff ends up being sort of, like synergistic um are you uh are you let's see um you did that iron fist miniseries for marvel um mm -hmm. but that was uh there is there has been there have been other iron fist comics since then written by other people so can we assume that that was it for you an iron fist with uh, the heart of the dragon i guess so they haven't asked me to do another one okay <laughs> But that I was, was very. Uh, I was very happy with how that. Uh, I love that artist, uh, Dave Locktell. Yeah, it's terrific. Every time his name comes up, I say he has to come back, come and do some GI Joe because he's such a great artist. I'd love to see him. Work yeah, I, I think I think moving from uh, that ship has sailed. Yeah, yeah, moving from <laughs> moving from IDW to uh, to Marvel, I, I assume his page rate went up, and he's mm -hmm. he's a bit more competitive now. Right. Maybe maybe the new publisher of GI Joe will, uh, if they've got deeper will, pockets, will can yeah. entice him. <laughs> um, is there anything uh, besides uh, the the IDW wrap up of GI Joe and teasing a new GI Joe? Is there, is there anything else you're working on that you uh, want to tell our listeners and viewers about? Mm, nothing that's not covered by uh, um, what do you call it. Um, NDA and NDA. Yeah, yeah. Fair, fair enough. We we give our guests a moment at the end of a show to, <laughs> to <laughs> promote promote themselves and their projects. Um, Mark, I'm out of questions. Do you have any more questions? I had yeah, I had a question just a, sort of about the I guess the IDW era of of mm -hmm. GI Joe, and I was thinking about like the wider story arc that sort of encompasses that those issues, and it and it's very much sort of the the Snake Eyes, Sean and Dawn and blue ninja um mm. kind of story across across that piece you know with 
you know other things happening in between do do you have a thought on on a kind of a broader story that's being told across that that piece and that that through line well you know uh, i'm very happy that there was a really good response to dawn you know uh, in general um but you know i i've been accused of being woke you know when i was <laughs> this is you know uh, i've not changed anything since <laughs> issue number one <laughs> in the way i approached this stuff I mean, I, uh, I added a, a Shia Muslim character, Mongoose. I added a Filipino character. You know, cause the thing is, I, I went, I went back through all the stuff and I, I was thinking about representation and how important it is. You know, how, you know, I've got, have had so many kids come up, you know, well, not kids anymore, but, you know, people now mm-hmm. in their forties saying, you know, well, you know, this is the first time I saw myself, you know, represented in, in a comic, you know. Mm. And, um, I thought, or, you know, this, this character actually comes from Idaho, you know, <laughs> like, <laughs> things like that. I thought, well, that is important, you know. And it's, it's also why I thought letter columns were important, you know, and, and, and the fact that, like, at the end of letter columns, I would say, well, you know, these 10 other people wrote in, you know, with very similar things. To, to, you know, uh, I would print one letter and then I'd print the names of 10 other people who wrote in similar stuff to that letter. Mm. So I would get the names of up to you know, 40, 50 readers into one letter column. And, you know, if you're a 10 year old kid and, and your name appears in a letter column, you know, you're going to get your mom to go out and get every issue that she can find of it, you know. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, the, I, I already the forgot what I, 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 I launched into. We talked about uh, representation and being. Oh, yeah, representation. Kind of yeah. So. You know, I got a huge reaction to the Philippines. I mean, they were like, holy smoke, we've got, we've got a, you know, a, a Pinoy Joe, you know. Mm. And, um, you know, I've got a, a South a, a South Asian Joe now. And, um, uh, you know, uh, a, 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 a black female MP Joe. So I think, you know, I... I, I wanted to like do, do stories that had, that had more to do with these 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 new waves of characters, you know, mm. uh, because it, it is more representational. Yeah, because it's it's striking how many new characters have come into the book, particularly probably in the, in the like the second half of your run at IDW that you've got all of these, uh, you know, strong new characters: Dawn, Sherlock, Multo, and and uh, and, and mm. so on. And you know, for for me, I don't I don't mind if it's the story isn't about my favorite character from the nineteen eighties, as long as you know, as long as the issue is in, enjoyable. Um, and you know, I want to find out more about Sherlock and the mystery of who that Fred, um, you know, was unmasked and their relationship, uh, mm-hmm. and uh, how how that that story continues, and I, and I hope it will continue. So so yeah, it, it's sort of a yeah, big part of his kind of introducing the new characters, and, and particularly. Uh, noticeable is how many sort of strong female characters 
uh, have been been used, you know, in a, in, in a very significant way in the IDW uh, arc. In, like in the in the last uh, couple of issues, we've we've had those, you know, those those fights in, in Cobra Island. Even thinking too hard about it, I sort of go, huh? You've got Scarlet and Jinx and Helix and Dawn, and they're sort of all, you know, leading in leading the the, the fray. Mm-hmm. Is there something about the the you know the female characters that sort of particularly appeals you to? Well, yeah, I mean, uh, even from the beginning, I, I had a, a good percentage of readers were female, hmm. you know, because uh, you know there's it, it about five siblings in a family, you know, pretty much everybody reads all the reading material that comes in. So you know, if you're if you're a girl and you've got like three brothers and they're, they're buying GI Joe comics. You know, you start reading the comics and then, oh, I guess I like this comic because, you know, the girls, you know, aren't running around with their palms nailed to their foreheads. You know, they're actually participating and they're, they're treated no different than the, than the male members of the group. Um, a few years back, I did an entire issue of G.I. Joe mm-hmm. that had no men in it at all. Yeah, even down to the flight attendant. Yeah, that's, <laughs> yeah. You know, people walking by in the background. You know, they were all female. And I did it just to see if anybody would notice. And I didn't get a single letter. <laughs> <laughs> nobody, nobody noticed it. You know, but if they did, they didn't say anything. But like, to me, that was very encouraging. Mm. You know, because. Yeah, that that meant that it didn't really matter. Yeah, that you could the, all be the the Marvel run. Did you know or get the sense that the Marvel GI Joe had a higher percentage of female readers than other Marvel comics? Well, yeah, because I got letters. Okay. You know, I mean, um, compared compared to Conan or compared to yeah, I mean, I had one uh, lady show up at I think in Kentucky or something, and she had. The actual postcard you know, that you know, I had these postcards printed that I would, you know, and it had like uh, Duke and Scarlet and Snake Eyes uh, drawn by um, Mike Fosberg and a, and a blank balloon you know, coming from, I guess, Duke. <laughs> and I would just, you know, write a quick sentence or two sentences and, you know, I, I mailed out between 10 and 20 of those a week. In response to to letters, and you're saying that a couple years ago, one of these fans, yeah, came up to you at a convention with this card from the '80s, right? And it was it was a girl. Hmm. Well, um, I I am a little sad that uh, any GI Joe series is ending, even if it is immediately starting up again somewhere else, uh, because it's it's still some kind of ending. I, I very much look forward to uh, whatever comes next. So I'll, I'll just rattle off a couple of things that I like uh, about G.I. Joe and that I'd like to see more of. Uh, okay. Any time you want to do the series bi-weekly so I can get double the, <laughs> so I can get double the issues, uh, that's fine with me. Um, okay. Mini-series on the side, like Silent Option, that you are also writing, um, I'm fine with that. Uh, yearbooks. And annuals, uh, I'm fine with that. 
uh, double-sized issues, whether it's an anniversary, like 301 or 50 or whatever it is, but also, uh, you know, experiments, big and small, like an issue with all female characters or uh, an arc with just a bunch of these very, very uh, new characters. I, I really am all out of questions, so I'll just toss, <laughs> I'll just toss this back to Mark. Yeah, I was going to say some of the things that I like, are they're kind of those long-running character-driven threads and, and mysteries like uh like with with sherlock and uh where that you know you're laying those breadcrumbs maybe you don't know what they represent at the time that you're putting mm -hmm. them down but but you know having that sort of feed out over over time that's great i love um uh, having some you know some sort of the characters being introduced that maybe aren't used so so often particularly when it's the from the cobra cast where i mean you know there's so many rich characters there that don't get used so much. So, um, so when those come in, that's uh, great. But um, generally, yeah, <laughs> I'm pretty uh, easy guy to please. I think. Thank you so much for for your time. Um, great to to finally have you on, and uh, yeah, wish you all the best for for the next era of uh, GI Joe at the uh, the new publisher. Okay. Bye Talk again. Perfect. Thanks. Thanks so much. Bye. Bye. -bye. So great that uh, Larry Hammer was finally uh, joined us on Talking Joe. I can uh, retire knowing that I have done my job. Um, if we ever I do won't. this again, we'll get him to not just hold up the guitar, but play it. Oh, nice. Um, so, yeah, great to have Larry on. Great for him to be so generous with his time and his uh, answers. Um, so uh, I think that is us pretty much done. Tim, can you remind us? Where can people find you when you are not talking to me and Larry Hammer? Video essays at uh, my YouTube page, Atomic Abe Productions. My brick and mortar comic book store is in Somerville, Massachusetts, Hub Comics. And I write about G.I. Joe at a realamericanbook.com. Excellent. And if you, the listener, are new to Talking Joe, you can find all about us at talkingjoe.co.uk which is the website. We have weekly episodes discussing the very latest issues, often with a special guest such as the artist of the issue. We are also doing a rundown of the Devil's Jew era of G.I. Joe and uh, so much more besides. So I think that is us finally done, Tim. And I'm sorry to say that uh, we didn't get Larry joining us in with the singing. Uh, I, I bet he would not have. <laughs> Although, maybe if we'd given him the notes ahead of time. He could have uh, done a jazz riff. Right. Uh, yeah, he, if he had it ahead of time, it wouldn't have made any difference to him. It would have been better on the moment. Um, so uh, with all that said and done, just remember that. I'll do a jazzy one. Nobody beats talking Joe. An international podcast. <laughs> Laters.